today, 1 Corinthians 9, 15 to 18, entitled, Paul is focused on fulfilling his calling, boasting only in the Lord. Let's pray before we get begin with the text. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the opportunity to worship you, to encourage one another, to think about what you've said, and to allow your word to penetrate our hearts and change us as we believe your promises and look forward to your coming. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we go to verse 15, we're in 15 here through, I believe, 18. Uh, the context that I spoke on a couple of weeks ago was Paul working at a trade to provide for his own needs so that he would not be paid by anyone from Corinth for being the preacher of the gospel. And last week I talked about the reasons for that. And here I have not used any of these rights. So this talks about what we talked about a couple of time, weeks ago is that preachers should be taken care of through their own work of ministering the word of God. That's the principle. Paul doesn't go by that because of possible patronage, um, influence buying, uh, and people wanting things their own way if they had enough money to influence the preacher. He wanted to make sure that didn't happen. So let me read verse 15. But I have not used any of these rights, and I'm not writing these things so that something will be done for me. In fact, it would be better for me to die than, full stop. No one will deprive me of my reason for boasting. Now, I have to explain this. When looking at this in the Greek before I chose the English translation, almost every version adds something after than uh, because it's not really a completed thought. And so what you add makes it seem to flow. But this one version, net, left it as it is in the original. And I have a reason for leaving it this way and putting this up here. It's as if Paul, thinking about, uh, it would be better for me to die, and in his mind, whatever he's thinking about would be some sort of compromise, some sort of, okay, you take care of me, and I'll make sure your agenda gets to the top. Whatever it is, it's so abhorrent to him, it's so awful, he doesn't finish his thought. No one will deprive me of my boasting. And so I left it as it is in the Greek by choosing this particular translation to show the intensity of Paul's idea that I don't want this to happen. I don't want the wealthy with an agenda to determine what I preach. So the issue is the previously unused rights uh, did not uh, mean he wanted something to change. Notice he said, I'm not writing these things so that something will be done for me. It's not like he's making this appeal, hoping they'll actually pay him. He doesn't want to be. He's not expecting a change. Ministers of the gospel should be taken care of, but they should not be subject to those who would have undue influence on what they preach, because that can only be the true word of God, 
and have an agenda that would be harmful to the message of the gospel. So that's the point. Paul's uncompleted thoughts into original, as I said. I'm going to cite Dr. Gardner. The fact that Paul might have gone on to speak of the gospel in this unfinished comparison is given weight by what he does say. He insists, says Gardner, that no one will take away his boast. It's important to note here that he assumes that if he were to receive payment, this would remove his boast. In other words, in his relationship with this congregation, that is the Corinthian one, in which power plays were all too evident amid bad theology and unhelpful patronage, taking money would remove his boast, says Gardner. That is, taking money would impede the gospel. And so in cases where the money means the gospel has to change, don't take it. It's not worth it. Better to, to work at something that will pay the bills and preach somewhere, small as it may be or whatever it may be, so that you can full-throatedly full, full teach the clear word of God, not tainted by somebody who has standing who wants things a certain way. You end up with bad theology. I see that some folks have a whole lot of money getting to get something out there and maybe sort of Christian. Have you seen this thing, he gets us? It shows up at the World Series, it shows up. Somebody has a whole ton of money and they think they're doing Christianity some good by portraying Jesus as somebody who's sympathetic to what's wrong with us and he gets us and he, Jesus had team members and things like that and so on. It's not really the gospel, but money will buy a lot of things, but the gospel's free. The truth is from scripture alone. The word of God needs to be taught for what it is and what it says. And however much money somebody may have, they're wasting it by putting a, a non-gospel out there in a baseball game or whatever it is they're doing. Because it gives a false impression about the call of Christ. Paul's intent and his boast is in what God did for him and what God does through his work of grace and not for whose influence is behind him, only God's. The final word, and interestingly, in the Greek language, word order is different in some ways than it is in English. It can be turned different places, put different places, because the grammar is dependent on the words themselves, not where they are. So the last word in the Greek sentence here is kanao. Kanao means empty. So what he says when it's translated, no one to deprive me of my reason for boasting, boasting literally, literally it says, the boast of me no one will empty in the order in the Greek. The boast of me, which is the way my boast, no one will empty, kanao. And if somehow he's getting paid in a wrong way from the wrong people, 
it'll make it empty. As it is, people get the unvarnished, clear, forthright gospel preached by the apostle who was appointed by Jesus Christ. I made a final statement about this in my notes. I wrote, Paul argues for the right to support but does not try to get it. Rather, he chooses to minister for free so that he may boast only in the Lord. Now let's go to a woe, verse 16. He has a woe here. 1 Corinthians 9, 16, still from the Net Bible. For if I preach the gospel, I have no reason for boasting because I'm compelled to do this. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, woe here, as I point out in my notes, is in the, if you look at how it's used in the New Testament, it's an eschatological term. It has to do with future judgment. It has to do with the end. It has to do with how current actions may be under a woe. In fact, when I, when I looked up this word woe, I noticed it's used 46 times in the New Testament, only twice outside of the Gospels and Revelation. So 44 of those are somewhere else, Gospels or Revelation. It's also found in this particular verse and then in Jude 11. Let me cite Jude 11. Woe to them, for they've gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Jude, there's only one chapter, I call it 11, which is actually verse 11. Notice in the other woe, it talks about in Jude 11, there are false teachers who rush headlong into the air of Balaam for pay. And that's certainly what was going on with Balaam, if you know that story in the book of Numbers. Balaam was given an enticing offer to curse Israel for a lot of money. I hope you know it's not good to curse Israel. There's a lot of people doing it today, and uh, that's very, very woeful. Because the reason for the hatred of the Jews is because of the promises of God given to Abram and his descendant, descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, going on down Moses, David, and so on. Yet, unfulfilled, some of them, but valid promises. So when they were concerned about Israel, Balak hired Balaam to curse him. And you know the story, the donkey rebukes him. And uh, Balaam was so uh, rushing headlong into it, he had a conversation with his own donkey. Figure that out. But when he opened his mouth, blessings came out. So in this regard, Paul is looking at this is the other, only other time this woe is used outside the Gospels and Revelation is right here, and then the one I just mentioned in Jude. Woe to me if I do not preach the Gospel. And his calling was so clear 
It came directly from the risen Lord himself as one born out of time. Paul knew for sure that he was appointed as an apostle, called to preach Christ. You can read about it in the Acts, and he talks about it in Galatians and elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 15. That to say, uh, somebody has a better deal would be putting himself under woe. Somebody has a better idea about what I preach. They have patronage, like the one who wanted to help Balaam get motivated. And Paul would see that as, whoa, there's no use toning this down. This is how he really believed about it. And uh, he has no reason for boasting because this is a, something that compels him. The call of God is so powerful, so real, an objective from Christ himself that he's compelled, compelled. And that's a strong word. The word anike, translated compel here, uh, is, a, is a strong word. The Bauer Danker Art Gindrich uh, Dictionary says necessity or constraint as inherent in the nature of things. Just the nature of the call is such that if I said, I can't do this, I'm going to adjust it, I'm going to do it differently, it would be a woe, an unfulfilled woe, because he will do it. But it would be an eschatological woe. An example of the many uses in the Gospels can be found in the book of Matthew, uh, in verse, chapter 18 and verse 7. Let me just give you an example of woe in the Gospels. Matthew 18, 7. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable the stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. This is an eschatological woe. To bring offense, needless offense, to the gospel, to the God's purposes. Paul will have none of that. So this being compelled isn't just hyperbole. It's how he sees it. Some of the scholars pointed out that there's some similarities to Jeremiah and also dissimilarities. And so you can study that sometime. But if you go through Jeremiah, there's a lot of woes. And some of them he pronounced about himself. It's very interesting because Jeremiah's duty was to tell Israel that they're going to be judged and deported. And he didn't like it, but that was the message from God, so he preached it. They threw him down in a cistern one time after he was down there for a while. Got a different message? Yeah, no, I don't. God's going to judge Israel. Stay down there. Um, but he used the term woe and sometimes pronounced on the false teachers who had a different message. This is so applicable. We might think, well, how does this apply? It very much applies. There is so much reward out there for preachers who want to have a different message. The, the seeker sensitive, the, all of these things out there, we want to have a happy message. We want to have a, a, a good and powerful message that people want. And this thing about crucified Jewish Messiah, this thing about the whole counsel of God, coming judgment, the need to repent, the need to turn to Christ alone, 
to, to the need to serve him, the narrow gate, building on the rocks. We, this is, people can't handle that. Didn't you do your marketing survey? You come up with, he gets us. Now, the problem is we don't get the truth that he spoke. He does get us, and it's a very scary thing to tell you the truth. So the woe, ui in the Greek, and it's used right here. Woe to the world. Jeremiah 23, 1 said, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord, Yahweh. It says, but there's hope with the woe, and the hope is in the gospel. Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice in the land. But if you want to look at some interesting material, don't have time now, just turn to Jeremiah 27 and see Jeremiah's own lament about himself. Very interesting. Whoa, whoa. What was the day they said to my parents, a child shall be born? So he has a woe over his own birth. So Jeremiah is an interesting character, but he wouldn't deviate from the message of judgment, but yet future salvation. So let's go to verse 17, 1 Corinthians 9, 17, where he, Paul further um, elaborates on why he said what he did. That he, there's no reward, I'm compelled to do it. Here's what he says. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if I do it unwillingly, I am entrusted with a responsibility. Now, this could be misconstrued, and I don't want that to happen. So I'll give you some details about what's going on and put it in a bigger context. Unwillingly means Paul doesn't mean Paul isn't willing to preach. Uh, there's a play on words, and I, I try to reproduce it here in English. The word voluntarily and the word unwillingly are, are in the Greek, ekon and akon. They have assonance and they're opposites. So they're there for the sound. Ekon, unwillingly, akon, excuse me, ekon is voluntarily uh, with the alpha, ekon is unwillingly. They're opposites with assonance. The difference, I believe, is found in this. Paul elsewhere in several places called himself a doulos, which is slave, a slave of Christ. So he's serving Christ his master to do the bidding of Christ his master. And because of that relationship, he's doing what he has a responsibility to do, and thinking of doing something else isn't even conceivable. He's serving the, the, as a slave to the master, Jesus Christ. And so therefore, the influence buyers, the people who would say, do it this way and that way, and there's a big uh, honoraria waiting for you, might as well not talk to them. It, it means nothing. He's not the same as Balaam. Balaam wanted the money. He just didn't get it. 
because he kept blessing Israel because the spirit of God would come on him and he ended up saying what the guy paid him not to say. So uh, he, he found a different way to curse Israel, which was to get them to intermarry with the pagan uh, women and put a curse on themselves. So that's the story of Balaam. So he has a, a responsibility. The word responsibility, right? Responsibility means to be a household manager. Uh, oikonomia means household management. So the household belongs to Christ. Paul is a slave of Christ. He's put in charge of the household, and he better do it right because he has to be one who gives account later for his management. And you see that in parables in the Gospels. So he is very much responsible to the Lord, the head of the church, as to how he cares for those under his management, those who are part of the Lord's household, and that people would be added to the house, household through conversion. So this is quite literally how he sees it. I don't have a reward. I'm doing what has to be done. There's a parable about that. I've only done what's required of me. I'm an unprofitable servant in one of the parables. This term, oikonomia, is also used in Colossians 1.25, where he says, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God. There's that word stewardship is for household manager, manager from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that Paul says I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Preachers have a sacred and awesome duty to preach and proclaim the whole counsel of God, the truth of the word of God, and to do so even with those, when those who hear it do not like it, assuming they have it right. We need to listen. We might be wrong if we're not reading the Bible correctly. That's why we judge, but we do so according to Scripture, what God said. And so um, this carrying out the preaching of the word is a sacred duty of every preacher. And if nothing else happens, and usually many more things do happen, but if nothing else happens, we need to labor hard in word and doctrine to make sure we understand the text, understand what God said, and see what the implications are, even if they're likely to make you unpopular. You just have to do it because that's a sacred duty. Paul is talking about that with his calling in vis-a-vis -vis the Corinthians. This is not, by the way, if you want to know a little historical theology, the Roman Catholic Church came up with this loathsome idea of works of supererogation. So if you're an ordinary Christian going about ordinary duties required of Christians, that's okay. But if you do above and beyond, extra things not required, they're called supererogation. And you can really get some great prize. Now, uh, this doctrine has been rightly rejected by everyone who believes in the authority of Scripture 
and the priesthood of every believer. God's not looking for volunteers to get extra credit. He's calling us to serve. And every believer is part of being called to serve. Uh, let me reinforce this idea that patronage is a likely problem by citing another scholar. I know I've done quite a few of those, but I'm hoping that this will help some. At some point, someone may hear this and be called and motivated and want to know where some good sources are. I find that helpful. So I'm going to quote Dr. Thistleton. The whole argument hinges on sovereign grace, he says, that it is in freely giving in response to God's free gift that kakema, which is boasting, or boast, grounds for taking delight in what one gives becomes possible, he says, only within a framework where pressure and law do not apply. Free gift in response to free gift. This, so in a sense, what we have is a free gift. The messianic salvation we have in Christ is a free gift. To be able to serve the Lord in any capacity is a free gift. That he uses us, he gives us a witness, and we can't judge the quality of the work until later. God does that. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 4. But we can judge what is right what is biblical and what is faithful. Anyone, any member of the body of Christ. So freely giving is simply discharging responsibilities for what God's given us. And that God will use. And I, I want to emphasize too, this isn't just about silver-tongued silver orders. Uh, like Apollos, because Paul, his critics said he wasn't one. But it's about serving faithfully in whatever realm God puts us and wherever it is or however it is, and that the gospel is right, the study's done, and what we do share, we know to be the truth from God. That is a great reward in its own right. Let's go to verse 18, 1 Corinthians 9, 18. Next week, by the way, I already have that sermon done and a PowerPoint done. It'll be verses 19 through 23 if you want to look ahead for next week. And in there, Paul has some famous statements like, I become all things to all people in order that I might win some. So there's a lot to talk about. So if you want to read ahead, think about it. By the way, a little hand, look for repeated terms. If you have a good English translation, there's repeated terms. We'll finish here with 18, 1 Corinthians 9, 18. I have a heading, Paul's reward is to preach the gospel for free. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel free of charge and so not make full use of my rights in the gospel. One person aptly wrote, Paul's reward was to get no reward. It's kind of ironic. But so what would that mean? My reward is to get no reward. Well, if you read back in chapters 3, where it talks about different rewards and the testing of each person's work, in chapter 4, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who is the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
the reward is eschatological. And frankly, just observing human nature from studying church history and the time that I've been on the earth as a Christian for over 50 years, this will really test motivation. Because when the only reward is going to be eschatological, and Eric was talking about faith in, in the promises, you have to literally believe the promises. It's not meaning that we don't take care of each other and that people don't receive salaries, but when the only reward is eschatological, you have to believe there will be that. There is a future. There is an eternal state. Christ will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, that these things are real and not just some fantasy dreamed up by preachers to get people to give them stuff or to do things for them. We have to literally believe the promises of God because otherwise, otherwise, the enticement of the world becomes so strong and so real. Look at what you could be. Look at what you could do. Look at what you could get. That many end up making shipwreck because the idea of some amorphous future promise that I think maybe is not going to happen won't motivate. But we have to believe that it's real. Reward, misthos, can also mean gift, which in this context means divine affirmation for godly conduct. When does divine affirmation for godly conduct come? From the Lord, the future time. The world isn't going to say, well done, you're serving your Lord. They hate whoever's blessed by God. You see that right now in a lot of ways in the news. The world hates whoever God's blessed, even in, a, in any sense whatsoever. And that will rile up people who want to kill and destroy because they can't stand the idea that God bless someone, going all the way back to Cain and Abel. Can't stand that Abel was blessed. So that's going on even now. The term can mean wages for work. Here's a statement I wrote in my notes. The first sentence is another rhetorical question. Remember 15 in this chapter, I think. He answers it himself. His reward is ironically to receive no reward, but that will be from God in the future day. That's what I was just sharing with you. Dr. Fee says in one sense his pay is in fact to receive no pay. But in the present argument, this non-payment payment also gives him his apostolic freedom, says he, from all people and circumstances so that he might more freely make himself a slave to everyone. We'll see that next week, by the way. So the influence peddling or buying or whatever, it's not going to have any effect. Having your name in somebody's roll book of honor on the earth, it's not worth it. To receive the accolades of everyone around, no, it's not worth it. But to serve in such a way as to wholeheartedly ask God for grace to serve him 
faithfully is the calling of everyone in whatever realm God's put us. In the future, for 1 Corinthians 3.13, I alluded to this. Each man's work will be ev become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. Now, I have, again, I put a statement in here to make sure I got this out. Um, this is my, my statement. The elitists influence buyers and others with their own agenda uh, impose on the, that they impose on the gospel are thwarted when Paul had nothing to sell. He took care of his own needs through working at his trade. Nobody is going to say, okay, Paul, we're going to have the biggest ad campaign you can imagine. It's going to be on every TV station. It's going to be on every billboard. It's going to be great. Everybody's going to know who you are. And they're going to buy your books. This is going to be awesome. No thanks. No thanks. My reward is to get no reward. I don't need the influence peddling, Paul says. I will preach what I've got directly from the Lord. What we have is what we find in Scripture alone. Here's another statement I made. Paul does the opposite of those who would eat idol food. This is back in the last chapter in idol temples to prove their rights and their knowledge. He has no rights to prove, but a message to preach. And that message is preached in such a way as to gain the most people for Christ. We'll see that next week in the sermon, in the text that we cover. The message is designed to gain many for Christ by removing the needless stumbling blocks and putting the unvarnished, clear word of God front and center and being willing to do so in a context where people are, can hear it and face what God has said and what God has done. I have two applications. Boasting only in the Lord is essential for all Christians. We'll go back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians and do a review. Secondly, we must resist elitist patronage, which will harm the gospel. I promised you a while back I'm going to finish the material in 2 Corinthians 11. I hope there's enough time for that. I want to show you how this got more intense as the Corinthians got more disgusted with Paul. And he gives what's called his fool speech. And I think we can make some applications. But let's do a review. I preached earlier in 1 Corinthians 1. So we're going to look at verses 29 to 31 of 1 Corinthians 1. Where Paul mentions this same theme, boast only in the Lord. So that no man may boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Next week, I have an application that will go back before this and do another application from 1 Corinthians 1. But the context here, 
was to consider your calling. I'll talk about that next week. Not a lot of mighty and noble, but a lot of weak folk and so on. We'll talk about that next week. But the point is, whoever God saves, whoever he adds to being built on the rock, being part of the family of God, being co-heirs, those who are in Christ, inheriting promises, whoever that may be, it doesn't matter where we came from. It didn't matter who we were in the world. Sometimes it was very prominent people, but they didn't have agenda. I mentioned uh, Lydia in Philippi as an example of that. Facilitated the gospel, but didn't have any other kind of influence. And whoever it may be, somebody with nothing going for them, very common. But that's not how God sees it. In Christ, we're all part of his family and all important and necessary. So by his doing, you're in Christ. That's God's doing. It's God's doing. We didn't, we're not in Christ because we're more clever than other people. We're not in Christ because we figured things out that they didn't. We're in Christ by his mercy. Even a sworn enemy like Saul of Tarsus dealing out blasphemies and threats against the Lord's people and the Lord himself was confronted and converted when the Lord said, why are you persecuting me? Paul knew it was by God's doing that he was in Christ. That was obvious. You read that in Acts chapter 9. And so it is with us. And so it is with any who know Christ. He became to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. These are gifts. These are benefits that God gave to every Christian. We didn't bring something along to say, well, look at this. Look at me. That's not what we want to do. Jeremiah uh, was the source of ultimately of this boasting in the Lord, the, the idea. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. You might want to turn to that and make sure that you know where that is. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Then I'll read it. And then we'll get to that section, 2 Corinthians, that I've been promising. Jeremiah 9, 23, 24. Thus saith the Lord, notice all caps in, in my version here, it should be, it's, a lot of them have that. That means Yahweh. Thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh. Quote, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, again Yahweh, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things a delight declares the Lord. I'm citing from the ESV. What a beautiful, beautiful passage. And it's really what Paul's doing. Boast that he knows me relationally. Having a relationship with God through faith. Unworthy sinners who were enemies of God, even if they didn't consider themselves that. Some people say, well, I, I'm a Christian because I was baptized as an infant and I grew up in the church. My folks sent me to Sunday school. 
and I'm busy now and I got other things to do and yeah I don't probably get to church but I'm a Christian I don't have any problem with God he's okay I think Jesus gets me that would be evidence of being lost you don't get it the problem is we don't understand him and his ways and what he's done. So Jeremiah lays it out that you know me. That's a relational knowledge that was instituted or initiated, excuse me, by God. Israel didn't decide to become a nation. God decided to call forth the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth. That was God's doing. Just as Paul says here, as far as us grafted in, by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. Give God the glory. Give God the glory. But maybe you just know about sort of American Christian religion. It's out there. It's probably okay. It's not. We need Christ. We need forgiveness of sins. We need to repent and believe the gospel. What does that mean? means turn from living for self, religion, whatever we think we're going to get, and turn to Christ for forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ, God the Son, eternal creator through whom all things were created, came into our world, humbled himself, was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He predicted Many things that he would do, many scriptures were fulfilled, predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, that after being raised from the dead on the third day, he would appear, and he did appear to many witnesses. And in keeping with Psalm 110 and verse 1, he bodily ascended to heaven where he sits and reigns at the right hand of God, and he will be coming again as he promised. And when we preach the gospel, we're saying, turn from self and trust in Christ alone. What we need is forgiveness of sins. Our sin and our wickedness, we're all part of the same fallen race, has caused God's wrath against sin, which is now delayed, but we know it's real. And if we turn to him, God, the Son, satisfied the wrath of God. He bore it on our behalf. He bore, the sinless Savior bore the sin of all in order that he might bring redemption and forgiveness. So when I share with you the gospel today, consider that. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him and be saved. Saved means Sounds like a Christian slogan, doesn't it? Saved means rescued from serious peril. Sozo in the Greek, saved. What this means is rescued from the wrath to come. Rescued from judgment. And given, right, given by God's grace, right standing before him. That's what it's about. And that's what it means to boast in the Lord. It's what he does for us, not what we do. So there's Jeremiah. I have a statement I put in my notes. If we 
redefined the cross in terms of religious status, mysticism, hyperpiety, empty symbolism, or any other idea from the pagan culture, we boast in what God rejects. Why well, ain't I the pious one? No, it doesn't work that way. We might think we are wise compared to ordinary Christians, but it's not our prerogative to make such comparisons. Again, continuing the statement I wrote on my notes here. Anyone who comes to God on his terms, only by grace, through faith, is truly wise. That's what it means to boast in the Lord. True wisdom is to come to God, trust him, and know him because he made it possible. Paul's list of righteousness, sanctification, and redemption are about what God has done for us. And all of that is a gift. Believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. Now let's, uh, I covered this slide, this next one is 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 3. A little bit, a while back, I got a little bit of time. And I want to emphasize, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, and there were other writings back and forth, it wasn't really going so well. They still didn't like him, and they still have these problems with Paul. And there's still a debate. So in that context, here's his foolishness, ironically. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness, a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So the serpent deceived Eve in the garden and he didn't just go away and never try it again. The work there plunged the whole human race into sin and death, and he's still playing with people and tempting them and bringing this cunning to bear. Christians are still under attack from the deceiver. Do you really have eternal life? Is it really worth believing God's promises? Is it really right to serve him? And don't you think somebody's taking advantage of you? I think you better get your, what you got coming and get it right now. Paul's worried about that because that's how they were acting. Dr. Seafried says the foolishness that Paul requests the Christians to endure may be understood as that which they regard as foolish, namely the weakness of the apostle. Who wants a weak apostle? Why have a weak one when we can get a great apostle? Why have an unimpressive one when we can have an impressive one? We know that some churches have lots of apostles. Why be stuck with the biblical ones? We can have apostles now. We can do miracles now. We can speak for God now. And all these great things will happen and you go to some pathetic um, place where there's a message about repentance and faith and eternal life and serving God and caring for one another. Nuts to that. 
power. We need power. So we have the same issue going on today. And uh, the Corinthians embrace the super apostles. Uh, the, the same uh, source that I have, an excellent commentary, says this, the Corinthians have regarded themselves as benefactors and sponsors of true apostles. This self-understanding is shaped by the culture and values of the world, he says, and I agree with him. Paul wages war against it with the gospel. It's amazing how elitist apostles can raise a lot of money in a big hurry. And they are shameless about asking for it. One came out and said he needed 84 million so he could take his bunch of airplanes and fly around the world with them. Yeah, we need $84 million worth of airplanes for a super apostle. But that's not how it works. I mentioned the betrothal part of this last time. And Paul is using an analogy because when he preached the gospel to them, he figuratively betrothed them to Christ because it's God, that, the Father, that does that. Sincere and pure devotion, there's a word here, translates simplicity, which means without hidden agenda or strings attached. The gospel is not rightly attached to somebody's hidden agenda. The gospel doesn't have strings attached. It's a free gift of God to people who are undeserving of anything. The pure devotion is the purity of the faith, which must be guarded. The true marriage is to Christ, and that marriage is delayed, as far as the ceremony, as God's people, as people to the church throughout the gospel. We'll talk about that next week. Paul does all things, becomes all things to all people. They may win some. Each one is added, and they are betrothed to Christ through the gospel. Let's go to verses 4 and 5. I told you I was going to come back to this. 2 Corinthians 11, 4 5, part of Paul's full speech, ironically so-called. Here's what he laments. If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we have proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles. They had super apostles. Paul was an ordinary one. But the danger of a different Jesus, different spirit, different gospel is very real. And it's going forth full bore right now all over the world. A gospel that has nothing to do with weakness, humility, dependency on Christ. 
simplicity in the sense of unmixed with bad motives, that is what is needed, but that's not what is seen by most people. Again, Siegfried says they imagine themselves to be generous and enduring him despite his deficiencies. He now wryly charges that they endure it well when someone brings them another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. Oh, good. Like the, like the philosophers in Athens, they couldn't wait to hear some new thing. I know when decades ago, switched to teaching verse by verse to the Bible and teaching doctrine to the church, some said, we already know all that. We want to hear something different. It's when we want something different we get in trouble. The doctrine of Christ is fundamental to everything involved in the church's betrothal to Christ. Who is he? What did he do? Why do we need him? What does he expect of us? The reference to super apostles uses the term in the Greek huperleon, which is only used by Paul here and in verse 11, something he composed the word. He's, like, he, he's likely ironic in playing on the claims they made about themselves. Where are the super apostles? They had apostles. When I researched this, there are, there are places where they got 50,000 apostles and layers of apostles and super duper apostles in charge of the whole thing. And they don't even know how to blush. And they think anybody that would suggest that it matters to use discernment somehow has bad motives. One more slide, 2 Corinthians 11, 6 through 8. Again, this is reacting and interacting with things that were being said about Paul. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, Paul says, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Then ironically, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? Rhetorical question. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. More irony. Any little bit of humility, depending on others, sharing something for free, not being as polished and flashy as the ones that are more popular, whatever it is, they see as a sign of weakness. Look at that, weakness. We see weakness, we pounce. We're done with you. We're not going to have any of this weakness anymore. That'll come up, by the way, next week some more. Seafried again says, indeed, Paul's refusal to accept funds could not, have become the, uh, could not have become the basis of suspicions that he was seeking to defraud them financially unless they also expected that their apostle would welcome the common social relationship of benefactor and beneficiary probably in the form of patron and client. Another witness, scholarly witness to that sort of thing in the ancient world. I'm the patron, you're the client, I'll pay all your bills, 
I'll make you important. I'll take care of your every need. You're like a really hot celebrity coming into town, and I'm going to be the one that takes care of you. And you'll have status you don't have now. Paul says no, teaches the word, and they say unskilled in speaking, unimpressive, and so on. They use the fact that he ministered without charge against him to call into question his message of Christ crucified. They judged Paul by their standards and deemed him inferior for having not done things in the manner his critics did. Their suspicions about him were false and groundless. He wasn't deficient. He had the all-sufficient God who called him to preach that will give them everything they'll ever need now and in eternity. Don't question the package, but the content. If it's the true gospel, better to hear it from a halting source because the truth is powerful. 